Romans chapter 4 this morning. We are making our way through this great letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and we are in Romans chapter 4, and we're going to look this morning at Romans 4 verses 1 through 8. You'll find that on page 941 if you're using the church Bible, and as I always remind you, I will remind you again today, it will help you to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along there with me as we look together at God's word, Romans 4, 1 through 8. And before we do, let's pray and let's ask God to bless and to transform us by the powerful working of the spirit through his preaching this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do again come to you as children to their father. We come as those who have no bread. We hold out empty hands, our God, and we say, give what only you can give in the gospel. Our God, we come to you utterly dependent on you for all good things, for you are the father of lights from whom all good things come. And our God, we especially come to you for the well-being of our souls. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray that Christ would be exalted. We pray that you would draw us with great power and love. We pray that you would accomplish in our souls everything that is well-pleasing to you. We pray that we would see the Lord Jesus for all that he is. We pray that we would love him more and trust him more and follow him more. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Romans 4, beginning in verse 1. There we read these words. The Apostle Paul is picking up on that argument. He's continued really from chapter 2 and now continuing to speak to the unbelieving Jew. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Well, as we've considered this great letter of Paul to the Romans, one of the things that we saw at the very outset is that Paul said he was, he was zealous to preach what he called my gospel to everybody in Rome. He said he was zealous to preach my gospel to everybody in Rome. And as Paul has developed that gospel and he's given us the intricacies of it, he's told us about the need for the gospel in chapters 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, and he told us why we need the gospel, that all men are under the wrath of God by nature. nature. The Jews are no better off than Gentiles, that everybody is sold under sin, that everybody has fallen short of the glory of God, that everybody deserves wrath on the day of wrath and the righteous indignation of God on judgment day, and that God has revealed a righteousness apart from the law, apart from what men do, and that that righteousness, Paul says, is the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And as Paul has been taking up all the, the possible arguments that the unbelieving Jews might raise and that others might raise, Paul has combated each of these things by raising a question and answering a question. And Paul continues to do that here in chapter 4 and notice that 
he opens this section now, this transitional section, by saying, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, what Paul is going to do, Paul has already intimated throughout this letter. Though Paul called it my gospel, Paul understood that some could then hear that and say, Well, Paul, what you're doing is teaching something altogether new. You're teaching something that the Old Testament didn't teach. You're introducing some new way of salvation. You're telling us about something we've never heard before, Paul. This is your gospel. We have the law. You say you have this gospel. And what Paul has already done, and is actually quite remarkable, is when he opened this letter, he actually said that the gospel that he preached was, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. So Paul has already said at the outset of this letter that the gospel he preached was foretold by God through the Old Testament prophets, that it was always about Christ, that the whole of the scriptures were about Christ, that Paul is not on one hand telling you anything new. He's just telling you something that's been fulfilled. And then notice in chapter three, if you'll look over there in verse 21, When Paul comes to the climax, when he comes to the solution, what is the solution to my problem of unrighteousness? What is the solution to my problem of being under the wrath of God by nature? Notice what Paul says in 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from works. Although, and notice this, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So Paul's already in chapter 1. And then at the beginning of the gospel presentation in chapter 3, verse 21, he has told us that the gospel he's proclaiming is the same gospel as it's always been. It's the same gospel. There's one God. There is one plan of redemption. There's one plan of salvation. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts this. He says, there is only one way of salvation and praise God that there is one. There's only one way of salvation and praise God there is one. And Paul has already told us, notice there in verse 29 of chapter 3, that God is not the God of the Jews only. He is also the God of the Gentiles since God is one. God redeems Jews and Gentiles in the same way. And so now Paul, when he comes to Romans chapter 4, and he is defending justification by faith alone, Paul first does it by appealing to the Old Testament scriptures. So in the first place, Paul tells us, and we'll see, Four things today. First, the justification by faith alone is proved from the scriptures. Secondly, justification by faith alone is proved by example. Third, justification by faith alone is proved by inference. And finally, justification by faith alone is proved by proclamation. It's proved by the scriptures, by example, by inference, and by proclamation. Well, notice there in verse 1 that Paul has introduced in the most brilliant way ever, because if you're an unbelieving Jew, the most important person to you is your father, Abraham, the progenitor of the Jewish nation. Everybody that was Jewish came from Abraham unless they were converted in. Abraham is the most significant figure to whom Paul could have ever appealed. And in one of the most masterful strokes of theological genius. And you know what? Let me say this at the outset. If you want a sermon on how to have a better marriage, you're not going to get one today. And if you think something that happened to some guy 4,000 years ago doesn't impact you, you are sorely mistaken. 
Everything that Paul's about to say about Abraham has an unbelievable impact on your life today. And so in a, in a stroke of genius, Paul goes back to Abraham, but really Paul goes back to the scriptures. Paul reaches back into the Old Testament. He goes back to the very first book in the Old Testament. He goes back to Genesis. Notice in verse three, he says, what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? Before Paul unpacks all his argument about Abraham and about David and about how justification by faith alone was always the same through all ages. It's always been by faith in Christ. Paul says, what does the scripture say? And notice two things here. The first is that Paul doesn't say, what did the scripture say? Very important. Paul doesn't say, what did the scripture say? Paul says, what does the scripture say? And what Paul sees, Paul has a robust doctrine of inspiration. Paul understands that when you and I read Genesis 15, 6, God is still speaking. When you open your Bible and you read Jeremiah, when you open your Bible and read Amos, when you open your Bible and read Obadiah, when you read Ecclesiastes, when you read all those books that you're like, what do I even do with this? Know this, God is speaking. God is speaking now. John Knox actually put it in an interesting way. He says, when I open my Bible, it's as if I am going up to the mouth of God and listening to what he says. I'm going up to the mouth of God and I'm listening to what he says. And so Paul first says, in essence to us, that Genesis, out of which we learn about Abraham and his justification, is God continuing to speak to us today. The second thing he tells us about the scriptures are that the scriptures are a whole. They're, they're a united book. Notice that Paul doesn't say, what do the scriptures say? He says, what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? Paul understands that Genesis is foundational to you understanding Romans. He understands very clearly that you can't understand your New Testament if you don't understand your Old Testament. Augustine um, in that now famous statement said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Paul will teach that to us everywhere by example, by explicit statement that in order to get the most out of the New Testament, in order to be grounded, and here's the big point, in order to be grounded in the gospel, you have to know your Old Testament. In order to be convinced that what we're reading in the gospel is in fact the very word of God, in order for us to understand the truthfulness of it, it will help us immensely to know our Old Testament. I think um, it's fair to say that, that many Christians who neglect the Old Testament are really doing it to the detriment of their souls. Really, you, you have 39 books that are there for the well-being of your souls. One old Puritan put it this way. He says, um, the reason we pre preach a book like Amos which a lot of people don't know what to do with. The reason we, we preach a book like Amos is because we need the whole Christ and the whole Christ is taught in the whole scripture. I think in this little phrase, when Paul says, what does the scripture say? He is giving you a world of theological teaching important for your soul. He is giving you a world of theological teaching that is absolutely fundamental for your souls. And as he then unpacks this, he secondly teaches us that justification by faith alone is proved by example. Now, Paul's going to give us two examples 
First, he's going to give us the example of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation and the father of the nations who have faith in Jesus. And then he's going to give us the example of David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, these two figures are the most revered and loved and respected figures in the Old Testament. If you grew up and you were a little Jewish boy, who would you want to be like? You would want to be like Abraham or you would want to be like David. They are the two most important figures in Israel's history. I know he could have thrown Moses in there. I get that. But for the sake of the argument, what Paul does is exactly what Matthew does at the beginning of Jesus's genealogy. He says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And now Paul's going to go back and he's going to say he's going to pull out the scriptures and he's going to say, look right here. Here is justification by faith alone in Abraham's life. Here is justification by faith alone in David's life. This is nothing new that I'm teaching you. You should have known it from the earliest pages of the scriptures. You should have known it by reading about Abraham. You should have known it from David's proclamation in Psalm 32. You should have known everything I already told you. It's all there. And what's remarkable about that? Let me say this at the outset. What is remarkable about that is this is the same Apostle Paul who probably for maybe the first 30 years of his life couldn't see it. Knew the scriptures probably better than everybody in this room, myself included. And for 30 years of his life, he could not see it. He had a veil over his face. And whenever he read the Old Testament, he could not see that Genesis 15, 6 taught justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But when the veil was lifted, Paul is there with the scriptures and he's saying, there it is, and there it is, and there it is, and there it is, and there it is. Everything I'm telling you that's been fulfilled in this day was already foretold, was already shown to be true in the Old Testament. Now, as we look at this, notice that Paul introduces Abraham by asking that question, what what would Abraham gain according to the flesh? What did Abraham get? In the flesh, in human effort. What did Abraham get by trying to be a good person? What did, Ab- did Abraham get anything based on his own efforts? Did Abraham get anything by his prayers? Did Abraham get anything by anything that he did whatsoever? And Paul's going to say, if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about before God, but not before God. And what's amazing is when we go back and we look at who Abraham was, we learn in the scriptures that Abraham was an idolater worshiping idols with his father and with his family across the river. Joshua will tell us that Abraham was an idolater. Abraham was an ungodly man. Notice, notice this, notice verse five. By the way, one of the most important verses in your Bible. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. What Paul just did is he just called Abraham ungodly. Paul looked back to the father of the faithful and he said he was ungodly. Now, I know you may say, well, but when I read about Abraham, he was godly. He was upright. He was an example of all this godliness. He was an example to people. The Holy Spirit says Abraham by nature in and of himself was ungodly. And that means everything that happened to Abraham could only happen by promise. It could only become his by faith. And it was secured for him through his greater son, Jesus, the son of Abraham, 
the Redeemer. Notice what Paul says, if Abraham was justified by works, verse 2, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Now he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. James Boyce said it was the most important verse in the Bible. I think Genesis 3.15 is, but it's very important. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, you have to know Genesis 15 to get Genesis 15.6. If this is all lost on you because you've never read Genesis 15, I encourage you to go back. I'll give you a brief summary. God calls Abraham out from his idolatrous family. By grace, calls him out. Genesis chapter 12, he gives him great promises. He said, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless all the nations in you. I'm going to give you an inheritance. Everything by promise. God says, you, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world in your seed. I'm going to give you an offspring, and the whole world's going to be blessed in him. That's Jesus. That's Abraham's offspring. God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you Jesus and everything is going to be fulfilled in him. And God gave Abraham large promises. And when we come to Genesis 15, Abraham has departed. He's believed the promises already. He has left Ur the Chaldees. He's left his father. He's left his family. He has gone to a place where he doesn't know where he's going. He is trusting that the God who is promised is the God who's going to fulfill those promises. And then Abraham starts to doubt a bit because Abraham's getting old. And Abraham thinks, well, how are all these promises going to be fulfilled when I don't have an offspring? I don't have a son. The only person I have is this guy, Eliezer of Damascus, the servant in my house. Is he going to be my offspring? And Abraham says to God, how are you going to fulfill these promises because I don't have an offspring? And God says, I'm going to give you an offspring. I'm going to give you a son and everything's going to be fulfilled through him. And Genesis 15, 6 says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Sounds to me like Abraham didn't do anything to get justification. God said, I am going to give you a son. I am going to send a redeemer. I am going to fulfill my promises. And Abraham said, amen. Essentially, Abraham said to God, amen. I trust you. I believe you. I don't see how it's going to happen, but I know you're faithful. I know that you'll do what you've promised. And that, my friends, is what it means to have justifying faith. And Paul says that what Moses tells us in Genesis is that Abraham believed God, simple act of faith in God and his promises and in the coming Christ, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what you may not know is that Jesus in John chapter 8 Um, When the Jews, who are the offspring of Abraham, are are disputing with him, he is the seed of Abraham, and they're rejecting him. He is the promised seed that Abraham looked forward to. And Jesus says to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus, but Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced to see it and was glad. Abraham was justified by faith in Christ, even though Christ had not come, even though it would be 2,000 years till he came. Abraham trusted in Jesus by looking forward and trusting the God of promise. And what the Bible says is that in doing that, God credited him righteousness. He accounted it to him. He reckoned him righteous. He imputed the righteousness of Christ to Abraham. 
that Abraham was at that moment clothed with the right of Christ, righteousness of Christ. He was forever legally righteous before God. Abraham was in a right standing with God. Ungodly Abraham was at that moment in a right standing with God. And here's the remarkable thing. The law was not even given for another 400 some years. So Abraham couldn't have been justified by the law. God didn't ask Abraham to do anything for his justification. What God wanted was for Abraham to believe in the Christ to come. And in believing in the Christ to come, he was declared righteous by God. He was by status put in a right relationship with God by the imputation of Jesus's righteousness. And Paul says, Abraham is the preeminent example. And then notice in verse six, he then introduces David as the second example. And he says, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he cites Psalm 32. When I think of David, I think of him in two ways. I think of David as the greatest type of the Lord Jesus that ever lived. He was the king of Israel. He was the shepherd king. He was the warrior that defeated God's enemies and delivered his people. He was the one that established the kingdom of God. In every way, David's life was typical. It was a picture prophecy of the life of Jesus, the son of David. I think of David that way. David was a man after God's own heart. David was an adulterer and a murderer. That's the other way I think of David. David is the greatest example of a a saint who has unbelievably grievous and wicked sin in his life. So think of David as a great man. Think of David as a wicked man. That's how the Bible presents it. And Paul, thinking of David as a wicked man who did wicked things, looks then at David. Notice this in verse 6. David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, you may say, or you may not say, but maybe you'll say, I thought justification was me positively getting the righteousness of God. I thought, you tell me all the time, justification means I am being clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. That I'm being covered in his righteousness by faith alone. And I say, yes, I do. But there is a negative aspect to justification, and that is that our lawless deeds and our sins need to be forgiven. And in justification, God forgives our sins and our lawless deeds, and he covers our iniquities so that he does not hold them against us. He does not impute them to us. Let me, let me put it this way. If you, if you came up with some great scientific investigation or some, you came up with some scientific discovery and your name went in a journal that would essentially be them saying, this is credited to you. That is imputed to you. That's yours. You did that. It's put to your account that you're the one that did that. And what Paul is doing is saying, here's what we've done. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. That's what we've done. So, so far from being somebody good working for their justification, 
we, ha- we should have put to our account, our name in God's journal should be Nick Batsig, sinner, great sinner, really awful, wicked, ungodly person. Seriously. Nick Batsig, utterly wicked. Put to, my, put to my account. Put to my credit. And David sees that. David sees. Notice this. Notice verse 8. David says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. That means David's murder and adultery was not counted to him because in justification it was counted to Jesus. Jesus took his murder, took his adultery on himself at the cross. That means whatever you've done from the example of David, from the declaration of David, whatever you've done, God says, my son has been treated as if he had done that. He has been constituted a sinner. Your sin has been imputed to him. That is a vital part of justification. The negative side is your sin is imputed to Jesus. His righteousness is imputed to you. The Lord will not hold your sins against you. And let me tell you this, on Judgment Day, that better be true of you. Because if that's not true of you, it will be judgment for all eternity. And if I'm the only person that tells you that with sobriety, let me say it again, if it's not true of you, All of your sin will be imputed to you forever, and you will bear all the wrath of God for eternity. But in justification, if you believe on the Lord Jesus, all of your sin was imputed to him, and all of his righteousness is imputed to you. And so so Paul takes the example of Abraham. He takes the example of David. It is incontrovertible. I can't even speak. It is without argument. It is the truth of scripture. It is the example of the greatest Israelites in the history of Israel. And so it is proven that justification by faith alone is a biblical doctrine. Well, notice then Paul gives this third thing. He tells us that justification by faith alone is proved by inference. Now, notice that Paul does this little argument in verse four. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as debt. Now, what Paul is going to say is, If your standing before God is based on what you do, if if you're if you are trying to work for your standing before God, if you think you're a better person than other people, if you are trying to establish your own righteousness through what you do, if you're trying to quiet your conscience, your guilty conscience by doing good things, lots of people do that. Everybody in Hollywood does that. Every charitable deed they're doing is a self-atonement attempt. You get that, right? Don't be fooled. That's self-atonement. They are trying to quiet their guilty conscience. If you are doing that, Paul says, then you have the mindset that God is your debtor. Then you've adopted the mindset that God owes me. And that is the most awful thought in the whole world. That the God, the infinitely holy God of the universe owes us anything except judgment is the worst thought ever. You know, there's an interesting little statement in the Gospels where the disciples have come back and they've told Jesus what they've done. And, and Jesus says to them, um, when you've done everything that's commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done only what was required of us. We are unprofitable servants. Think about that. There are many people that, that would say to you, you know, God sees you as this valuable treasure that is just so valuable and wonderful in yourself and you're so so worth it to God. Jesus says when you've done everything that's commanded you say we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was commanded us. 
And that's because Paul wants you to see that Christ is the one who merits all things. Christ is the one who establishes righteousness. Christ superabounds everything that the law commanded. Jesus does everything that we need so that by a simple act of faith in him, we are justified. That's Paul's argument from inference. Let me say this too. If what you believe about justification by faith alone, in any way whatsoever, usurps what Paul says in verse 5, then it's not justification by faith alone. Paul says there, to the one who does not work, does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. You see, at the end of the day, when people get to know you and you let people into your lives, you open your hearts to them and you you air your dirty laundry for them, Because that's what Christians can do. Christians can air their dirty laundry. Because at the end of the day, what what a Christian says about himself is, in and of myself, I am ungodly. I am ungodly. If you say, I'm not ungodly, then you have denied the gospel. You have denied the gospel. My friend Burke Parsons wrote a really great tweet this, this week. He said, the gospel is only exciting to sinners. I want you to think about that. The gospel is only exciting to sinners. Justification by faith alone is only exciting to ungodly people, to people that know in and of themselves they are ungodly, that they have no righteousness before God, that they are polluted and filthy by nature, that their hearts are completely depraved, that they are, they, Job says that by nature we drink iniquity like a fish drinks water. Think about that. By nature. Job says that. I think actually Elihu may. Um, It's always weird to know who's talking in Job. Um, We drink iniquity like a fish drinks water. Constantly, by nature, constantly, we drink iniquity like a fish drinks water. God justifies people like that. Now, here's the remarkable thing. The Bible says in Proverbs, he who justifies the wicked and condemns The righteous both are alike an abomination to God. He who justifies the wicked says to the wicked, oh, you're right, you're doing good. And to the righteous, you're condemned, you're doing wrong. They're both alike uh, uh, abomination to God. But here in Romans 4, something marvelous about the nature of God, the infinitely holy God who loves justice and righteousness and holiness and who always does what's right and who always does what's good, doesn't say, I will justify those who do right. He doesn't say that. He says, I will justify the ungodly person who believes in my son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about what kind of God the true God is that he he has every right to just wipe everybody who's rebelled against him off the face of the earth immediately? And he has instead said, I will come, I will send my son, I will redeem them, I will justify an ungodly people for myself. So the implication of the gospel, uh, justification by faith alone, is proved by inference from those arguments. And finally, it is proved by proclamation very, very quickly. We've already touched on Psalm 32. Here's what I want to say. David's proclamation is the central proclamation of Scripture. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I could hear that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in my life. I need to hear that every day of my life because every day of my life I sin. Every day of my life I do things that are wrong. Every day of my life I say things I shouldn't. I think things I shouldn't. I do things I shouldn't. I fail to do what I should do. Every day of my life, I fall miserably short of the glory of God in my words and thoughts and actions. And the most wonderful thing is that God proclaims in the scriptures, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It is the proclamation of scripture. You know, it's interesting to me that when we look at the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And God is now taking his kingdom out into the nations of whom we are a part, and he's sending his apostles out to proclaim the gospel. It, it's conceivable that the message they preached could have been, just for the sake of argument, God has sent his son Jesus. He has sent him into the world. He was crucified. He was risen. If you will repent of your sins, if you will believe the gospel, and if you will live a holy life, you will have your sins forgiven. It's possible that that could have been the message. If you will repent of your sins, if you will trust in him, and if you will live a holy life, you will have your sins forgiven. But that's not the message. Nowhere in the book of Acts does God say, if you will repent of your sins, trust in, in Christ, and live a holy life, your sins will be forgiven. But what they say is repent and look in faith to him and your sins will be forgiven and you'll be justified from everything that the law of Moses could not justify you. Now, let me say this. God cares deeply about your holiness. You will not go to heaven if you don't have holiness, but not as part of your justification. And the declaration of scripture is God saying, I will forgive your sins. There are several people in here I don't know well. But I can say this. I know that your biggest need is that God forgive your sins. That's your biggest need, is to have your sins forgiven. And to have a conscience that is at rest with that. And I want to say this this morning. You know, it's, in likelihood, there's somebody here who, who doesn't feel the weight of this, doesn't feel conviction of sin, doesn't feel the guilt of sin, doesn't feel the need for the forgiveness of sins. That's why we proclaim this message. And that declaration, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, our response should be, oh God, I need my sins forgiven. I need my sins forgiven. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Pardon my iniquity. And in the gospel, God says, I've already done it. I've already done that in the death of my son. I have already secured for you all the righteousness you need. I've secured for you the pardon you need. If you are a believer and you struggle with a guilty conscience, and I know there are many believers who have repented, who trust Christ, who struggle with assurance. That proclamation, those arguments from inference, that example from Abraham and David and the evidence that this is biblical are there to assure you that if you have come to Christ, your sins are forgiven you. If you have trusted in Jesus, all of your iniquities have already been pardoned. They will not be held against you on judgment day. That is, that is the the single greatest thing we need for peace in our conscience. You know, when Paul will come to the implications of justification, he'll say in chapter 5, in the next chapter, 
Having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We glory in tribulations. That's what this doctrine produces in our souls. Peace with God, joy and hope in what's coming, and the ability to go through all the trials and difficulties of life because we've been accepted by God in Jesus Christ. Let me say this finally. For those of us who are in Christ, who have known his pardoning mercy and grace, and who have, who have received the imputed righteousness of Christ, I want to I encourage us to be examining our lives. Do we evidence that by a joyful proclamation the way that David did? Here's a man, I actually think Psalm 32 may have been written after his sin. There's evidence of that. After his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And here's a man who proclaims like a trumpet, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. When people talk to you, do they sense that you're a person who is delighting in the fact that you have received covenantal blessing by God, by faith alone in Christ, that you know that your sins are forgiven and that you are proclaiming that good news to others? That's, that, is the, that is the natural, logical outworking of all of this. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, when we examine our hearts, we know that we need to hear these things again and again. We are thankful, Lord, that you are the God who has spoken, who has revealed the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone through Christ alone. We thank you for the scriptures that confirm that to us. We thank you for the example of Abraham and David and all the saints before us. Father, we thank you for all the arguments that you mount up to help convince us of the truth of the gospel. And we thank you, our Father, that you make that proclamation to us this morning and that you call us to joyfully make that proclamation with you. We pray, our God, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Write these things indelibly on our hearts. Give us joy and peace in believing and help us to rejoice in the Lord Jesus by whom we are righteous. We pray these things in his name. Amen.